And Alice, thank you for joining me on the Facing Bench. The Facing Bench tradition, I think, is wonderful in, uh, in your Quaker life. Uh, a Facing Bench. You know, in my Baptist tradition, Dina will remember this, traditionally you would have two or three or four large chairs, sometimes uh, almost like thrones sitting up on the platform. I remember one person who came to lead a special series of studies for us in Greensboro absolutely refused to sit on the platform because he was not going to occupy a throne. And I think it's wonderful that you have democratized your tradition such that people sitting up here can be seated in the same kind of circumstance as you. But Alice has read for us a very significant and memorable passage of scripture from the Gospel of Mark. And it concluded, suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus, only Jesus. Let's think about holy mountains for a moment. The Mount of the Transfiguration is among several holy mountains that form a part of the landscape in today's Middle East, in particular Israel and Jordan, uh, Egypt and Saudi Arabia. But there are other mountains in other parts of the world that are reckoned by other peoples to be holy. One of them rises 1,142 feet above the flat desert floor with a circumference of nearly seven miles. It is the largest monolithic mountain in all of the world, and that means it is constituted of one single huge undivided boulder. And I'm speaking of Uluru. Uluru is the aboriginal name for the iconic stone mountain, used to be called Ayers Rock, that stands at the very center of the continent of Australia, way down under. The minority aborigines are the native Australians. Their religion has been largely animistic, animistic, and what that means is that they have looked for answers to life's deepest questions in the plants and the animals and even the inanimate objects that are arrayed all about them. The gigantic rock Uluru is itself believed to have a soul, and that's why the aborigines have been unwilling to climb or to walk on top of its, of its uh, circumference. Moreover, they have placed signs of warning down at the bottom asking people to avoid going there. They don't want to risk transgressing or treading upon that which they consider to be holy. But how different our Christian and Jewish understandings are when it comes to holy mountains. In our traditions, mountains are not holy in and of themselves. Mountains have been made holy by something that has happened there. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills, sang the psalmist, from whence cometh my help, but my help cometh from the Lord, which made the heavens and the earth. And thus it was that that one that you and I recognize to be the Lord did not place warning signs at the foot of the mountain in our text today. Rather, he called together his very closest disciples and invited them to join him as together they climbed up there. The apparent reason for the journey was to clarify the identity of the rabbi that these men had been following for month after month. 
Now we can look back several chapters that precede chapter 9 in the Gospel of Mark and readily observe the disciples' increasing confusion about who Jesus was, why he shielded his true identity, what was the point of his seemingly selective and occasional miracle working. And many have supposed that the ultimate clarification actually appeared in chapter 8, where the teacher conducted his pupils to the far north of the country to a place known as Caesarea Philippi. You recall that he asked a significant question there. Who do people say that I am? And you also remember that the disciples offered several suggestions, and then Jesus made it personal, but you, who do you say that I am? We can imagine that the impulsive disciple named Peter first hesitated, and then he gulped, and then he finally proposed, you, you, you are the Christ, the Messiah. And of course, Peter got it right, but then we remember that he quickly fell from favor when Jesus spoke of a personal future that would not involve messianic conquest. Rather, it would involve suffering and death. Mark records that Peter then rebuked his Lord, while Jesus' retort to Peter was even harsher, Get thee behind me, Satan. So what exactly was everybody to make of this teacher whose parables, examples, and figures of speech were so very hard to wrap one's head around? This healer who had opened the eyes and ears of the deaf and the blind but didn't want anybody to say much about it. This worker of signs and wonders who fed vast hordes of people, but who insisted that the takeaway was something far deeper and longer-lasting than merely filling empty stomachs. Who was this person, this mysterious, enigmatic person? In the minds of the disciples, it must have been high time to clear things up. They didn't have long to wait, for in only a few days they came to this holy mountain, the Mount of the Transfiguration. Now reading the scripture, you observe that Mark calls it a high mountain apart. And the traditional site, perhaps you have been there, is called Tabor. It's a perfectly bowl-shaped prominence a few miles west of the Sea of Galilee. At fewer than 2,000 feet, it seems that nobody would have called it a high mountain until we realize and remember that in the Gospels, a mountain, the term mountain, refers to any kind of natural elevation. But for a certainty, Mount Tabor is a mountain apart. I won't forget my first ride up in an Arab taxi. The driver wowed all of his passengers by taking the dozen or more hairpin curves at excessive speed. And every time he would jerk to the right or jerk to the left, he would throw his hands into the air, releasing the steering wheel, and shout, ooh, ah, and so did the rest of us. <laughs> and th thankfully, we drew a calmer driver as we came back down from the mountain. Now, some of you may have visited there, the crest of the mountain feels like an entirely different world. There's room for an orthodox basilica and a small monastery linked by a pleasant shady avenue. 
and the view from the top is wonderful, outstanding, stunning, and evocative. You see the valley of Jezreel to the south, the Sea of Galilee to the east, Nazareth lies up to the north, and Mount Carmel and the Mediterranean Sea are due west of where you stand. And all of those today are very busy, touristy places, but none of their hubbub reaches the top of that very holy mountain, nor did any of the cacophony that Jesus would encounter when he descended down into the valley later that day, only quiet serenity, and truly, truly, it is a mountain apart. What happened there was extraordinary. We read that Jesus went apart from Peter and James and John, and he was transfigured before them. Transfiguration is the same as our word metamorphosis. It refers to a change in outward appearance. The best description Mark could produce was the look of Jesus' robes, which were dazzling white, such as no uh, fuller, uh, no launderer on earth could possibly bleach them. The color white suggested high holiness. And these disciples already had some sense of their teacher's holiness, for early in Jesus' ministry, they recalled that in the Capernaum synagogue, a man with an unclean spirit appeared, and the demon within that man cried out aloud, I know who you are. You are the Holy Son of God. What the disciples lacked was a sense of their, church, their teacher's not only holiness, but his absolute distinctiveness. A sense of the singularity which would set him apart from all others of life's means and measures. And presently there appeared alongside Jesus two others whom the disciples somehow recognized. They recognized them as Moses and Elijah. Moses, the lawgiver, had descended another holy mountain, Mount Sinai, some 1,300 years earlier, and he had the commandments of Yahweh in his hands, and these became the moral and the ethical standards by which God's people would henceforth be identified. The prophet Elijah, on the other hand, represented all of the Old Testament's prophets who spoke truth to power and insisted that a holy people must go forth in righteousness and make their very nation a holy place. We observe that the text describes these two figures as real living persons come from another place, translated, as it were, from another dimension of reality. And as such, they proceeded to converse with the living person of Jesus. As to their subject matter, the gospel writer Luke, who was ever a stickler for details, reported that they spoke of Jesus' departure, which was soon thereafter to be accomplished down in Jerusalem. Peter, no doubt smitten by the contrast between that and what he had always assumed, was left only to stutter but it was a very revealing stutter. Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Tell you what, let's make three dwellings. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Tabernacles, booths, dwellings, that's the word that Peter chose. Three identical booths to acknowledge the equal eminence of the three persons who would inhabit them. 
For the Lord, in Peter's view, had risen to the level of the law and the prophets. But was that a compliment? Was it correct? Did it betray a true understanding of the identity of Jesus? But now enter the voice of God the Father, the great and final clarifier of every man's confusion. God was having none of this, speaking as he had once spoken to Moses from the interior of a cloud, the Lord God declared with all solemnity and finality, this is my son, the beloved. You listen to him. We read from the book of Romans, chapter 10. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But we see that not everybody gets it. Not everybody listens to the word of God. Some have to be shown. And so with Peter and James and John, for suddenly they looked all around, and they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. Only Jesus. All through their lives, they had done as well as Jewish fishermen might, these three. They had honored the God of Moses, tried to keep the commandments, to pray in the synagogue, to study the Torah. Recalling Elijah, they had tried to mind their families, their vocation, their villages, making them safe, secure and livable places in a difficult world. They had tried to live righteously to make the right decisions when confronted with difficult choices. Yet doubtless, one thing had always haunted them. One thing had always oppressed them. Jesus himself said it as well as any Old Testament prophet. When he had first delivered the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, Unless your right living exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Before long, these disciples would once again be asking, well, where then is their hope? What then can save us? And Jesus would remind them, with people it is impossible, but not with God. With God, all things are possible. As Jesus' followers, how vital to our purpose in this world it is to get that. How vital to get that word out. For that, my friends, is the best news that the human ear will ever hear. With people, salvation is impossible, but not with God. With people, solutions may seem non-existent, but not with God. You know, there is much in life that we can get right, and we do. Much that we can and should perform, and we do. But we are called to remember that our faith and our future will never rest upon what we can accomplish. Rather, everything is hanging upon what has already been accomplished in our behalf, in the world's behalf. 
Moses and Elijah are important. They will always matter. Doing right, being good, making the best choices will always be our human responsibility before the one human who fulfilled all righteousness. But that can never be the core of our message and our mission to a humanity that will never make the grade. Not ever, ever. For I hand it on to you, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, I hand it on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. First importance, that in our outreach to people, poor, needy, confused, sinful people, what remains of first importance? At the end of the day, we recognize that the problem is not that our world is askew. It always has been. The problem is not that we can't get our act together and get everything right. We never will. The problem is that we people are sinners. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Paul wrote to the Romans. Time after time, we have chosen to go our own way and to live out of harmony with the one who created us, and we have done that to this day, and we will continue to do that. But there is a fix for that. What remains for us now is to go forth courageously and proclaim that fix, and it's right here at the very center of our scripture today, Jesus, 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 and only Jesus. There's the fix. And of course it is so, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.